You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I do not think that many parents are aware of what's inside the game. In fact, in my presentation, I show many pictures from the inside of the books just to show the images of this game. I yes. mean, the gruesomeness of this game and the occult link to it. Well, I know that when uh, I did my message, and this has happened, I have letter after letter where people took the pieces. Now, there's sixes involved in the pieces of the game, but they yes. take the pieces of the game, they would throw them in the incinerator or the fireplace, and screams would come out because there seemed to be some kind of spiritual forces inhabiting those pieces, and children would drop out of life. They didn't want to study anymore. Uh, what, what are the pieces? It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, we examine stories about monsters and the facts behind them. In this episode, we'll be talking about a troubling time in American history, a period in the late 1970s, much of the 1980s, in which a substantial portion of the population was inundated with fearful stories about dark, satanic dangers lurking in the shadows right here in every town, USA. This period of history is known as the Satanic Panic, and it was no laughing matter. Strange stories were repeated in the pulpits of churches, whispered among parents at PTA meetings, and shared through viral social media of the 1980s, fax machine lore. People went to prison for allegations of Satanic ritual abuse. Police were giving training seminars, alerting them to the dangers of Satanic murders and kidnappings. And as scary as these allegations were... Amazingly, there were no such dark cultists. It was a moral panic. We'll be touching on this topic again in the future because it figures heavily in some of the claims behind cattle mutilations, but in this episode we'll be talking about how it impacted one of my favorite hobbies, tabletop role-playing games. Our guest today is Professor Joseph Laycock. Joe is an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. He has written extensively on topics of interest to Monster Talk listeners, such as vampires, and previously appeared on our episode discussing Slenderman and Tulpas. Today we'll be discussing themes from his latest book, Dangerous Games, What the Moral Panic Over Role-Playing Games Say About Play, Religion, and Imagined Worlds. But first, a word from me. Monster Talk. Hello, listener. How would you like to be on Monster Talk? I don't have time to interview everyone, but I'd like to do something interesting for episode 100 of the show, and I'd like your help. Here's all you need to do. 1. Decide what your favorite monster is. 2. Record yourself digitally using this format. My name is blank, and my favorite monster is blank. Obviously, don't use the word blank. Fill in your actual information there. And then 3. Save that file and email it to me, blake at monstertalk.org. And here's the important part. Put the words episode 100 in the email subject. That's all you have to do. Send me your name and your favorite monster as an audio file and put episode 100 in the subject. 
Thanks for helping us make episode 100 extra fun. Monster Talk. Thanks to all the people who have already sent me your audio. This is episode 95, so you still have a few weeks to get your contributions in. Now let's get on to our interview. Okay. So first, Joe, I suspect that most of our listeners already know all about this. But to be thorough, when we're talking about role-playing games, what are we talking about? What are role-playing games? Well, you know, role-playing games seem to be a, a sort of intuitive level of, uh, of human behavior in that uh, you know, children will play with dolls, children will pretend to be their grown-ups and imitate things that they see uh, their parents doing. Uh, so it's, it's a sort of natural behavior, but fantasy role-playing games are something a little bit different um, that really began in the, the late 60s and, and 70s. And these were more, uh, more sophisticated versions of, uh, of war games, uh, things like uh, 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 Gettysburg and uh, uh, Risk, games made by companies like Avalon Hill. Uh, and so in, in, in some senses, it's, it's kind of like being a kid again where you're playing cops and robbers. Uh, but the rules are a lot more complicated, as anyone who's played these games uh, probably knows. Uh, so they're, they're very uh, involved in creating realistic models of anything that can happen in the game. So this is where the, uh, the big uh, manuals and the funny-shaped dice come in that the people have probably seen, even if they've never played a role-playing game before. And you mentioned that a lot of these games first hit our culture in the 60s. Um, but you talk about in the book that this, there's quite a history to role-playing games, and they really go back hundreds of years. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of these games? Sure, uh, and, and other people have done uh, uh, more detailed work on this than I have. John Peterson's book, Playing at the World, is a, is a fantastic history of role-playing games. Uh, but for as long as there's been warfare, there have been games of warfare, things like chess. And after the uh, scientific revolution in Prussia, the Prussian military said, well, what if we made a game that was really a simulation of warfare and, and was as realistic as we could make it. Uh, if we did that, then we could train our officers uh, to make better tactical decisions on the battlefield. So the Prussians began making more and more complicated games uh, involving moving pieces on a grid uh, and making more and more rules for different types of situations, uh, for artillery, for pontoons, uh, for rough terrain and this sort of thing. Uh, and eventually they got so complicated uh, that they said, well, we should just have a veteran officer be the mediator and the two players can attempt to do things and the, the veteran officer will just say whether or not their tactics uh, work. Uh, then when uh, during the, the Napoleonic Wars, a Prussian uh, militia was able to defeat a professional French army and that victory was attributed to the training using the war games. So then every modern uh, military began making uh, various forms of war games, including the, the U.S., uh, and eventually, there was a move to try and make a game that, that civilians could enjoy. Uh, and so uh, this, this led to games like Stratego. Uh, and then the company Avalon Hill made Gettysburg, which was a really successful game. Americans, for the first time, could uh, relive the Battle of Gettysburg in, uh, in their playing at their kitchen table. And, and sometimes the, the South would, uh, would win. Uh, and so by the 60s, there was a culture of people who would, would play these, uh, these war games uh, and then slowly, kind of fantastic elements got to be introduced. People said, well, what if there had been a, a dragon present at this battle, right? How would, how would that have played out? Uh, and so the games began to, began to include more fantastic elements, and they began to focus on individual characters instead of whole uh, armies. Uh, and they shifted from a, a zero-sum game where there's a winner and a loser to a game where there's lots of players with their own uh, agendas, and there's, there's no longer a stated... Uh, uh, goal or object to the game anymore. The game just sort of goes on and you play it just for, for the pleasure instead of to win. Well, so it's really been a matter of art imitating life and life imitating art in a history. Absolutely. And I think that's why these games are sociologically significant is because uh, uh, the games do reflect reality and then we think about reality differently after after breaking reality down into a model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the- First of all, let me just throw this out. I really enjoyed the book, and it, this is a topic that's um, uh, really near and dear to my heart because I'm a gamer. Uh, <laughs> but I've also uh, I distinctly remember uh, some of the things you're talking about uh, culturally in, in the book, uh, uh, the sort of satanic panic period of time. We went to a summer camp, and I, and I heard 
about some of the uh, what really turns out to be urban legends about uh, gaming and about Dungeons and Dragons in particular, and about rock bands and satanic uh, influences. And so, uh, I just want to throw that out there that the people may be wondering why are we talking about this on Monster Talk? There's really actually two reasons that this is a great topic for I think most Monster Talk fans, and that is that on the one hand, there are monsters within the context of these games that are fascinating. Uh, and they come from just a, a, an amazing array of backgrounds, mythological and just made up for the game, you know, in particular. But there's also this other context where these games are framed um, in terms of being gateways to the occult, but not the occult like you know Wicca or you know people who see themselves as modern pagans, but an occult that, as near as I can tell, doesn't really exist. Almost like a fantasy occult. Is that overstating it? No, that's not overstating it at all. Uh, uh, the FBI, when they were investigating these claims of satanic cults, uh, eventually wrote a report and they said, when you guys say occults, what you really mean is any religion that isn't your own. Right? Uh, <laughs> so, so there was a police training manual that was passed around in the 90s with a list of occult symbols. And literally, the Star of David from Judaism was an occult symbol. The Crescent from Islam was an occult symbol. The yin-yang, the Ankh, pretty much everything except for a a cross was considered to be uh, a symbol associated with dangerous cults. So, yeah, this is a really loaded term that just sort of means anything that that, that we think is out there that is is scary and and bad. Uh, And and it's a great way to... uh, get people jazzed up and, and ready to do things that maybe they wouldn't normally do if they feel there's an occult threat out there. Yeah. So we'll, I still have, we have a lot of like sort of framing structural questions about, you know, getting the background on the gaming itself. But I just want to throw that out there for people who are wondering, why are we talking about this? Because, um, <laughs> there's at least two interesting layers of, 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 uh, sort of threat, if you will. <laughs> so, I'll, we'll get back to the role-playing questions, but I just wanted to go and put that out there at the beginning because the, it, there's some really dark and interesting things that happen, and um, I think this is going to be fun talking about it. Yeah, well, Joe just mentioned uh, police training, and uh, I was, I, I'd read the section in his book where he was talking about uh, role-playing games that are used by governments and corporations and even healthcare professionals. So, Joe, could you tell us a little bit about how role-playing is used in those areas and by adults? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of literature about how uh, role-playing games are used uh, really in any line of work where you have to make quick decisions, right? Because you can make those decisions in the context of the game where the consequences are are reduced uh, as a kind of simulation. And then hopefully when it's an actual emergency, uh, you'll make better decisions. So I know that they have uh, done things like... uh, uh, constructed uh, model Afghani villages so that soldiers on peacekeeping missions uh, can practice interacting with people, pretending to be uh, tribal elders and things like this. Uh, they've, they've used role-playing games to do uh, emergency uh, preparedness uh, in the events of uh, uh, you know, flu outbreaks and, and, and things like this. Um, so, so role-playing games is a great way to develop skills and kind of new ways of, of thinking about things. Uh, but the panic was specifically about fantasy role-playing games, role-playing games that involve magic and monsters and things that don't exist in the real world. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so the way that D&D was described by these people, uh, the people who were against it, makes it sound way more sinister and disturbing than the game really is. I think uh, for our listeners, a really good example of this is the comedy routine by the Dead L Wives, uh, which I'll put links to that in the show notes. Which is very funny because it sort of frames it like now we're going to take a deep look inside the, the satanic world of Dungeons and Dragons, and it's just people in the basement playing and eating Cheetos. So, <laughs> in your in your research, did you find any evidence that um, that the people who have this sort of framework, uh, this sort of uh, making Dungeons and Dragons or role playing games uh, the sort of target of moral outrage, did that? Did, have they ever even played or seen a game of Dungeons and Dragons? Well, no. Um, <laughs> it, it, the short answer is, is no. And in some cases, they're clearly lying. So, I mean, one of the most outrageous things I found was this uh, uh, psychologist who told this story about this girl who is playing Dungeons and Dragons and she becomes addicted to it and she's playing every day. And then she is banished from her kingdom in the game. It's not really even clear what, what this means. 
So she buys a functional longsword at an antique store and kills herself by running it through her own stomach. Uh, and of course, there's no way of, of verifying this claim. And I'm trying to think about where this 14 year old girl would get this sword and how she would manage to run it through her own stomach and so forth. And it's very clear this person is just making this up. Um, uh, the founders of, of Bad, uh, Patricia Pulling, uh, claimed that she met a group of gamers at the local college and played 40 hours a week with them for months. Uh, I don't think that's true either. She seems to have no understanding of the game and, and the writings that she would um, put out. And, and also, gamers don't play for 40 hours a week, not even the most dedicated uh, uh, gamer. The only incident where I think somebody actually played is William Deere. William Deere was a detective uh, who was hired to to track a missing college student um, that he believed was had disappeared because of their involvement with, with D&D, which didn't turn out to be true. Uh, and he wrote a book about this called The Dungeon Master. And in that book, he describes, you know, wanting to learn more about the game to understand the mind of this missing student and approaches a random college student and says, if you meet me in my hotel room tonight and, and run a D&D game for me, I'll pay you 50 bucks. And then says 60 if it's a good game. Uh, I can't imagine what this student uh, uh, thought about that proposition, <laughs> but showed up at the hotel room with a, with a friend, and there's a description of the game. And uh, the game is so kind of uh, frustrating and, and banal that I think it, it really happens, and the, the character sheets are published in, in the book. But that's the only case where I think someone making these claims really had any idea of what they were talking about. Yeah, that's a, that's a sad story. Um, do, you, do you, you know, that led to the famous, I mean, it's almost legendary idea that people at universities were going into the steam tunnels and playing games. I mean, that, that comes up in uh, so many gaming stories that I've heard, but, but it all starts right there with that case. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what the reality of that was versus what the legend was? Sure. So this was a, this was a student in, uh, in 1979. His name was uh, Dallas Egbert. Uh, he was uh, allegedly a, a, a prodigy with sort of genius level IQ. He uh, uh, started college when he was only 16, uh, but apparently had a lot of problems. He was epileptic. Uh, he was experimenting with drugs. He was gay, but not out at a time when this was um, uh, much more stigmatized than, than it is today. Uh, he was involved in uh, games of D&D on the campus uh, but apparently he had been told not to come back because they said you can't play while you're, while you're high and, and we think you're on drugs. So his involvement with D&D was actually fairly minimal. Uh, but he, he disappeared and uh, William Deere was this detective that had ended up uh, getting involved with the case. Uh, and William Deere is an interesting figure. He seems to – he's been accused of being sort of narcissistic or kind of a megalomaniac. Uh, he wrote a book more recently called O.J. Simpson is Innocent and I Can Prove It. And he also appeared on the Fox Alien Autopsy documentary, uh, which some of your viewers may be familiar with. So he's kind of drawn to uh, uh, media sensation uh, uh, sort of cases. Uh, anyways, Deer uh, uh, found a uh, corkboard in his room and uh, came to believe that this was some sort of clue to where Dallas Egbert had, had disappeared to. Uh, and sort of constructed this narrative in his own mind where Dallas Egbert either uh, uh, had lost touch with reality and, and believed he was living in a fantasy world uh, or else was some kind of evil genius and was now um, setting himself up as the dungeon master and luring the investigators into this kinds of uh, uh, game that he had created for them. Uh, what it turned out was that, that uh, Dallas had actually gone into the steam tunnels under the college campus uh, had taken a lot of quaaludes in an attempt to kill himself. It was an unsuccessful suicide attempt. He woke up, uh, and then he decided to just run away. He went and lived with uh, some acquaintances he had met through the, the gay community. Um, so various people were willing to kind of put him up for a night, but nobody wanted him uh, living with them permanently because of the nature of the situation. Uh, so a month later, he called his parents, and he had ended up in, in Louisiana and said, uh, um, you know, I'm ready to come home. Uh, so they sent William Deere to, to pick him up. So William Deere really had nothing to do with, with finding him. Um, but uh, in the month that he disappeared, uh, William Deere had a press conference where he said, uh, 
Um, you know, this, this was a kid. This all happened because of Dungeons and Dragons. He lost his ability to uh, discern fantasy from reality. And so you had all these headlines saying uh, genius kid disappears in D&D cult and, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, and unfortunately, a year later, Dallas really did kill himself. Uh, and a contributing factor to that may have been that the, these, all these newspaper articles outed him as, as gay uh, in, in the paper. So it really was a very tragic case. Uh, and then the story was adapted into uh, the, the novel Mazes and Monsters, which was a, a parody of, of D&D, which eventually was adapted into the, uh, the movie with Tom Hanks, which I think Tom Hanks is still a little uh, embarrassed about. But folks with a Netflix account can, uh, uh, can go uh, uh, rent that. And, and uh, this is sort of an adaptation of the scenario that William Deere was describing of a, of a gamer who becomes delusional and loses base with reality. You just stole my next question. I was going to ask you if the case was tied to the, the book and TV movie. It absolutely is, although the, uh, the author of that book um, played quite a lot of D&D and, and understood it. Um, so she was, not, uh, she was not really aligned with the panic in the sense that her take on things was not this game is corrupting children, it's destroying society. Her take was society is already harmful and so a generation of, uh, of teenagers who feel like they have no hope are taking refuge in this game. Uh, so she, she played that game quite a lot. Uh, she enjoyed playing a, a fighter character in, in the game. And so one of the female characters in the game is sort of – in the story uh, is, is sort of based on, on her and how she kind of found uh, playing this, this warrior character empowering while she was playing D&D for her research. So are there real world dangers to these games, do you think? Absolutely not. No, I don't think so at all. Uh, There's some psychological literature uh, out there on this, uh, but I found a a lot of cases where this is very therapeutic. Um, So there's one famous case study of someone with crippling depression, uh, but she has created a a hero that's a a player in, in one of these games, and that sometimes the way that she beats her depression is she thinks, well, I'm going to pretend I'm this hero, right? What would this hero do uh, in this situation? I found another case where there was a teenager who had uh, attempted suicide and was in, uh, in treatment uh, and found a D&D group and played an evil character. And this is, you know, this is controversial that in Dungeons & Dragons you, you, you can play an evil character. There's, there's rules for that. Uh, but the therapist had a lot of uh, progress with him asking about, well, when you play this evil character, you know, why, why do you do the things that you do? And, uh, you know, it turned out that by, um, by doing these evil things within the context of the game where it's not actually hurting anybody, uh, he kind of worked through some of his personal issues that he had with his family and so forth in a, in a healthy way. So the therapist actually wrote a paper about this and suggested that uh, – uh, this can be an outlet that helps people to kind of think about things that are going on inside them that they couldn't otherwise express, right? And this is really what all art does, whether it's painting or fiction writing or role-playing games. It takes things inside you that you can't quite express and, and gives you an outlet for them. Right. So it's kind of like the psychodramas used uh, in satanic rituals as well by uh, the Church of Satan, yeah, I, th- I think, uh, yeah, if, if you look at what the Church of Satan actually does, <laughs> right. as opposed to the many, many claims about what they allegedly do, then yes, yeah. right? Uh, there's, there's, there's a sort of catharsis yes. uh, yeah. and a sort of, of, of release of, uh, of things that are not always socially acceptable. So in the book, you talk about um, moral entrepreneurs, and we're going to leading into the satanic panic discussion here. But so what, what do you, how do you define a moral entrepreneur for our listeners? So in, in sociology, there is a, a literature of uh, what's called moral panics. And, and a moral panic is when uh, a particular uh, a cultural phenomenon, whether that's, uh, you know, sort of punk rock teenagers or, uh, or street gangs or, 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 or witchcraft, if we go further back, uh, is seen as something that is a threat to society, um, something that has the potential to, if not destroy society, kind of ruin society, undermine its values, and, and so forth. Uh, and so in a moral panic, certain people uh, will, will step forward and become kind of the, uh, 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 the leaders of the panic. And these may be political leaders, they may be religious leaders, 
they may be, uh, you know, concerned parents, right? That was a big factor in the claims about Dungeons and Dragons, concerned parents. Uh, and they create what's called a folk devil. So a folk devil is sort of whatever is kind of out there uh, that the, that is the alleged threat to society. And usually it's, it's, uh, it's something that's actually not really a threat. It's just new or it's misunderstood. And uh, uh, Stanley Cohen, who's a leading sociologist on this, wrote that the ideal folk devil is, is something that's actually very weak and can't fight back, right? So uh, with the moral panic over D&D, right, most of the players were uh, adolescents who really had no, no ability to resist uh, if these claims were being made about them. Do you think that it's still a folk devil today? No, I don't. Uh, I, I, I've read some uh, more recent literature where there's kind of a new generation of, of gamers and they, they interview sort of the old guard and they say things in the interview like, well, first of all, I'm not a Satanist. <laughs> and these younger gamers are like, well, why would I assume you're a Satanist? Is that, is that the thing? <laughs> right? so, so I think the stigma is now pretty much gone, but it, it does still come out uh, uh, here and there. Uh, Pat Robertson in 2013 uh, on the 700 Club was still talking about how D&D has destroyed people's lives. Uh, Don Reimer, who is one of these police consultants that gives uh, seminars on so-called occult crime, uh, he, he died recently, but as, as recently as 2011, was, was reiterating that, that D&D leads to uh, satanic uh, uh, crime. Uh, and then in the political sphere, there has still been a number of cases where politicians who play games like World of Warcraft have been attacked and their opponents have tried to claim, have tried to uh, uh, claim anyone who plays World of Warcraft or plays uh, role-playing games is uh, is somehow evil or uh, unfit for public office because they're they're mentally ill. Uh, but lately, those kinds of attacks have uh, have backfired. Yeah, um, it was amusing to, to read about that because those people vote, gamers vote, and they're online. They 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 talk mm-hmm. to each other. It's like. <laughs> That's right. I think the best case was one of the campaigners for John McCain uh, compared uh, Obama fans to nerds living in their parents' basements playing Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, the the gamers online uh, took him to task for this. And he apologized and he said, I I didn't mean any slight to to gamers. And, you know, this campaign is uh, committed to increasing the strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom and charisma of every American. (laughs) <laughs> so, so even though he made fun of it, he clearly knew a lot about how these games work. Yeah. <laughs> so you've, we're getting into the satanic panic a little bit here. How did the satanic panic begin to target D&D and role-playing games? Well, the first half of the book is looking at the history of this panic. And I, because of my background in American religious history, I'm trying to connect the panic to bigger things that were going on in American culture at the time. So in the 1970s, when D&D was, was invented and published, uh, there was a lot of fear about cults and about brainwashing uh, and the idea that your personality is actually very fragile and, and other things can come and, and give you a, a whole new personality. Uh, so if you look at uh, books like The Dungeon Master talking about Dallas Egbert's disappearance, um, this this fear of cults uh, shapes the way that 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 uh, was interpreted. Right, that uh, this wasn't a game. This was about brainwashing. It was about mentally uh, dominating people, rendering them insane. And then in the eighties, the sort of fear of cults about groups like uh, that was directed at groups like the Harry Krishnas and the Moonies, uh, the Children of God. These different groups that emerged in the seventies that fear kind of shifted to the fear of satanic cults and these satanic cults didn't actually exist at all. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Hare Krishnas at least really existed. You could point to one. Uh, But if you ask people, show me a satanic cult, they would say, well, they're real, but they're hidden and they look just like ordinary people. So you never actually know who's a, who's a Satanist and who isn't. Uh, So that really began with um, Patricia Pulling, whose son uh, committed suicide and he had been an honors student in high school, and the honors class could play D&D uh, as sort of a reward if they got all of their homework done. And the narrative that she eventually formed was that my, my son uh, uh, you know, had been corrupted by this satanic uh, game. 
and that uh, he had been cursed in the game and was going to actually uh, murder his family, um, that he had been given sort of a, a hypnotic command to, to do this, and that he, he killed himself so that he would not carry out his programming and murder other people. So in her own mind, she turned her son's suicide into a story of, well, my son actually uh, martyred himself to save his family from this satanic game. Uh, so then Pulling formed an organization called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which although it was small and was mostly consisted of um, you know, very active, concerned parents, uh, had a really tremendous impact uh, and really uh, a strong ability to kind of shape the culture and, and created a, a fear that these games are uh, satanic or associated with occult crime uh, that survived all the way to the, the present. So Michael Stackpole wrote a, a thing called The Pullings Report, which was kind of a point-by-point uh, point counter comment to Pulling's approach to the whole thing. And um, I, he said he was going to be able to come and talk to us about that, but I haven't been able to get that scheduled, so I don't think it's going to make this episode. But um, besides that, what other kind of things eventually led to her not being – well, actually, didn't she died, didn't she? That <laughs> What led to Pulling's um, sort of cultural impact against these role-playing games – diminishing yeah I, th- I think the biggest one is the one that you pointed out that she she uh, uh died of cancer in 1992 uh and i do think that she was doing a lot to sort of hold up um this this whole organization uh, uh sort of single-handedly uh another uh factor that that didn't help was uh what was called the dungeons and dragons defense so a number of uh of especially teenagers uh uh, who committed violent crimes, either uh, uh, homicide or suicide, um, this was blamed on Dungeons and Dragons, right? Uh, so uh, Pulling kept what, what she called, or what, what was sometimes called the trophy list, where every time there was a, an incident of violence involving a teenager that she felt could be linked to D&D, she would sort of add it to the list, right? Um, so the first item on the list was her own son and Dallas Egbert's, and then the list would grow longer and longer uh, uh, from there. And mathematicians have written about how this is an example of how ordinary people uh, don't understand statistics, right? Um, because if you looked at all the numbers of gamers and you looked at the number of people on this trophy list, um, that would actually imply that Dungeons and Dragons prevent suicide if you look at national rates of suicide. Uh, but most people don't think that way. They just think this is a really long list, so this has got to be a really dangerous game. Uh, but anyways, uh, eventually people who were um, going to court for these crimes, people who had committed homicide or manslaughter or something like that, uh, would say, it wasn't my fault, the game made me do it. Uh, and so Patricia Pulling would offer her services as an expert witness uh, to come in on these cases uh, there were something like 30 different cases where people attempted the D&D defense. Uh, and as the decade wore on, they got increasingly ridiculous. So it went from uh, uh, cases of uh, 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 children or adolescents attacking their, their parents. Um, and these are often cases involving abuse or other sort of complicating factors to eventually people that, you know, robbed a gas station and shot the clerk in the gas station and said, well, I played D&D once. I thought that uh, the, the clerk was an ogre, you know, this sort of thing. So, so the, the failure of that, I think, was another factor in, in what eventually caused these sorts of claims to look ridiculous. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy... UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Uh, when I was a kid, so I, I went to my doctor's office, and there was a little, you know, there were magazines and that sort of thing. But he also had a little um, a kiosk of gospel tracts, and um, I, there was a Jack Chick uh, selection there, and I saw the famous Dark Dungeons comic book tract. Um, and over time, at least in my perception, that seemed to be like a uh, a, a fairly important moment in this sort of uh, anti-Dungeons and Dragons movement. Uh, how, what, what was the cultural impact of that track? Uh, did, it, did it have a bad effect? I mean, Jack Chick's stuff is pretty crazy. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. it he, makes, um, he makes it seem like that the world of uh, Christianity is one where there's constantly super-powered uh, uh, miracles of, of uh, happening on both sides of the, uh, of the aisle, if you will. Yeah, so so I have a chapter in the book uh, where I look at these claims that the the moral entrepreneurs, especially the ones like Jack Chick that were promoting these conspiracy theories, um, were effectively living in a kind of fantasy world, right? Because they were saying that um, behind the everyday world as as we see it, there are these satanic conspiracies, and there's witches, and there's demons, and I'm the only one that has the ability to fight it. So they had really done the very thing that they were accusing gamers of doing, right? They had created a world in which they were heroes, in which they had this meaningful quest to destroy evil. But the difference was that for them, this was, re- this was their reality, right? This was not a, a game that they could stop playing uh, when, they, when they wanted to. Uh, and so most of the people making these claims were affiliated with Jack Chick. It kept coming back to Jack Chick and, and his publishing house. Uh, if you're interested in Jack Chick, there's a great book called Religion of Fear by Jason Bivens that talks about his, his life. Uh, but Jack Chick was very influenced when, when he learned that uh, in China, Mao had successfully used comic books to spread communist ideology and thought that's what Christians ought to do. So he uh, began making these little chick tracks that everyone had seen. Of course, there was this famous one called uh, Dark Dungeon. Uh, but a lot of uh, the sort of the, the, the craziest, the most out there, the most paranoid uh, claims makers about D&D were all connected to, to Jack Chick. So uh, John Todd uh, was this figure who uh, claimed that he uh, was, was part of this family of witches that secretly rules the world on behalf of the Rothschilds. Uh, claimed that uh, C.S. Lewis was secretly a Satanist, that Tolkien was secretly a Satanist, and, and he would go to churches and be the sort of whistleblower uh, and, and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you about the demonic uh, uh, conspiracy theory. So John Todd ended up um, working with Jack Chick, and the preacher at the end of that comic uh, actually looks like John Todd. And so I talk about this in, uh, in, in the book. Um, he uh, actually had that porn stash. With- <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I mean, John Todd uh, eventually went to jail for uh, for rape and was was transferred into a into a mental institution where he finally died. So wow. when, when people say he was disturbed, he really was disturbed. He wasn't just uh, just quirky. Um, Eric Schnobelin, who in his latest book talks about how he was a, a literal vampire because of his involvement with Satanism and, and literally uh, sustained himself on nothing but human blood. Uh, has also uh, vehemently attacked D and D, and was also published with uh, with Jack Chick uh, and Rebecca Browning, who uh, uh, for a while was a was a doctor and whose uh, license to practice medicine was was removed um, because of her uh, um, sort of demonological claims that involved giving patients uh, drugs that she uh, should not have been giving. Uh, she also ended up publishing with with Jack Chick, so it's just this sort of uh, uh, a very strange uh, uh, case of all these sort of profoundly paranoid, bizarre people, uh, and ending up finding a home with this one publishing company. Is is, is Chick still alive? 
Uh, I don't know the answer to that. He's got to be very old if he's still alive. Yeah. He's famously rec- reclusive, though. Yeah, yeah. Basically I, never done interviews. Or, <laughs> I've looked yeah, at websites like, where they had alleged photos uh, of him. That's where it's like. <laughs> Christian publications. But you know, the, the artwork in that comic is really good. It looks like an EC comic almost. I mean, and even the content's very similar to an EC comic, you know, like Crypt of Terror or a, a Vault of Horror, that sort of thing. Um, but... But then it just goes off the rails if you compare, like, what happens inside the the story, you know, uh, briefly for our listeners. I, I could link straight to Jack Chick's site the last time I checked. Oh, sure. Yeah, and so people could read the, the, the comic for themselves. But um, I've had this conversation in real life uh, with people where they've made those claims that there's supernatural elements. It's it's dice and paper, you know. I mean, it's... It's an imaginary thing. There is no real magic in in these games. It would be cool if there was. I mean, I would love to have some real magic powers, but uh, uh, it's just not like that. And it's it's fascinating to me um, how, with a straight face and a clear conscience, people can reframe what seems to me a a benign activity into such a, a, a dark context. Right. Well, the, the other thing that's so fascinating is that the creators of D&D were, were Christian, and, and they weren't a little bit Christian. They were pretty serious about being Christian. Gary Gygax, at least at one point in his life, was a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, and, and so these are not people that believed in magic or, or saw there being sort of any connection. And in one interview where Gary Gygax talks about this, he says, well, first of all, if I knew how to do magic, I wouldn't be making this dumb game, right? I would be ruling the world. And, and second of all, if you look at the actual spells, you know, one of the spells calls for legumes, right? That this is, <laughs> this is one of the things that you need to, to cast this spell. So obviously this is never going to amount to any kind of actual uh, uh, supernatural powers. But uh, for people who have never played the game, those kinds of arguments could, could still be compelling. They do call beans the magic fruit. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, as you're saying, it is a matter of ignorance and just not being exposed to these games. I grew up in Australia, and that those games are played there. But I wasn't—I'm not a gamer now. Wasn't then, and not knowing much about it, you certainly do hear a lot of these stories from people. And um, I think it can be pretty compelling if you you don't understand the game itself and you think it's some kind of underground thing that's going on. Yeah, another thing that I thought was really compelling is that the both the, the claims makers and the people designing the games, they were both looking at the same world, and, you know, our world, and, and looking at the same elements. Uh, and so a lot of things like horror movies that were big in the 1970s were sort of adapted into Dungeons & Dragons and also adapted into claims about satanic uh, uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, so, so films like uh, you know The Wicker Man and things like this tend to end up in both uh, in, in, in both uh, the conspiracy theories and in the games. And even if you look at the covers, if you look at the covers of D and D books from the seventies, and you look at the the covers of books um, uh, written by people like uh, uh, Rebecca Browning, uh, it's they look very this, very much the same. They both have. Um, you know, swords and dragons and demons and stuff like that, even though one is about a role-playing game and one is about uh, these are the last days and, and Satan's army is, is, is getting ready to come upon us. Uh, so in a strange way, both the conspiracy theories and the games were kind of uh, what I call rival fantasies, right? They were, they were both fantastic worlds, but one admitted it was a fantasy. The other one didn't. Joe, in all of your research, did you uncover any evidence of anyone being led into occultism or satanic worship by the games? No, certainly not Satanism. Uh, but, you know, there, there is a significant uh, subgroup uh, of people who both play role, fantasy role-playing games and who also practice, you know, Wicca or paganism or, or some sort of magical practice. And we don't have any good statistical evidence about what percentage of people um, who, who play these games also are involved in kinds of uh, a magical worldview outside of the game. Uh, but from some anecdotal evidence, um, people have said, well, you know, I was interested in magic before I ever played these games, right? So there's no way to kind of uh, uh, determine uh, – uh, it, it's important not to get conf- correlation and causation confused. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I do think that for some of these games, especially uh, – in, in one chapter, I talk about White Wolf games. Uh, White Wolf really tried to 
make a game that showed magic going on in the contemporary world in a way that was very realistic and plausible. And so I think for a certain percentage of players, they thought, well, if magic were real, it might be something like in this game. Uh, so there's never a case where people confuse the game with reality, but I do think there are cases where people begin to think about reality in a different way because of playing these games. And that applies to whether or not you think uh, something like magic is possible, but it also applies to things like uh, politics, how you think society works, uh, what do you think would happen if you jumped off of a uh, 20-foot wall instead of a 10-foot wall? Uh, and really anything in the world, right? These, these models that you have to make for it in the game uh, affect the way that, that you think things will work in real life. Personally, this doesn't really mean anything. But I don't know anybody personally who was you know, uh, led to Satanism or anything like it from these games. I do know people who mentioned that uh, you know, playing a game where the gods have stats and you can kill them, that, that did <laughs> – had an impact thinking about that you know what what is the source of this magical power why do some characters have it and some don't that's not explicitly stated in the books but in thinking about that it led them to become you know maybe better critical thinkers about that sort of thing in real life um but yeah i don't i don't know i, I find it fascinating that they they saw this threat there or did they see a threat there i mean d- d- is the threat there or is it that you get power culturally when you're calling out the threat you know what i mean I think there's a, there's a couple of things going on there, but my theory in, in, in thinking about this is that um, uh, these fantasy games do function kind of like a religion, uh, only in the sense that uh, as a religion professor, I think religion is about uh, people coming together and creating sort of a meaningful model of how the world works. Uh, so you see some of that going on in these games, and when gamers say things like, uh, I'm religious about Dungeons and Dragons. I think that's what they mean. I don't think that they they mean it's 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 a religious identity in the sense that being a Christian or, or a Buddhist is a religious identity. But the flip side to that is you can come to see uh, religion as a kind of fantasy role playing game, right? You can come to see religion as a sort of game where everyone has uh, a, a model of how the universe works and everyone has roles and they've just sort of been playing this game. Uh, for for thousands of years, uh, and I think that that thought occurred to some of these claims makers, and I think that a lot of the attack on Dungeons and Dragons was an was an attempt to push that back down. Right, my religion isn't a game; your game is an evil religion. Uh, and, and you mentioned uh, uh, books where the gods have stats, and you can kill the gods. Uh, so there was this this great book called uh, Deities and Demigods uh, that came out in the seventies. Uh, and was very scary to people who claimed that this was an occult uh, game. And they renamed the book Legends and Lore to kind of try and get them to back off, but that didn't really help. Uh, but one of these uh, Christian claims makers said that in this book, Deities and Demigods, where there's stats for Odin and Zeus and so forth, that there's stats for Jesus, right? And Jesus has, I don't know, 50 hit points or something like this, right? And and the thing about this is this is not true. There are no stats for Jesus or any biblical personage uh, in any published role-playing game that I'm aware of. No one's ever done that. But you could do it. And and what I think happened is that these Christians, that they had that thought, right? We could make stats for Jesus, and Jesus could, you know, be such and such level and, and have this many hit points and saving throws and so forth. But that thought was so uh, anathema to them that instead of admitting the thought occurred to them, they projected that thought onto their opponents and claimed that in this book, Deities and Demigods, there's stats for Jesus. And, of course, uh, there wasn't, and and the creators of of that book were Christians, so they would never uh, uh, do something like that. So there's a few places like this where these sort of uh, hidden fears seem to to poke out, right, where it seems like in attacking D&D, uh, some of these people are desperately trying to shove something down that maybe they don't want to think about. I, I can't imagine. I mean, well, I, you know, I, truthfully, I never played in any campaign where we got high enough level to even consider those kind of activities. But um, I always heard stories about people who went into God-killing campaigns, that sort of thing. I just can't imagine having – that seems kind of like a munchkin thing to do and that for, you know, just – I don't know. <laughs> Power gaming, yeah. Right. It's a little too high level for my imagination. I can't even imagine what kind of treasure drops you get when you kill a god. So, <laughs> right. I should just add, as a, as a religion professor, when I say that you can, you can compare uh, someone's religion to a role-playing game, I'm, I'm actually not trying to 
dismiss it or claim that religious people are delusional or childish or, or anything like that, right? But no, no, uh, it's structurally, it, it's, it's got a similar way of it's a mode of thinking, right? Or, exactly, right. looking at, 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 at uh, religions as social institutions, right? The way that people construct knowledge is, is very similar in both role playing games and and in bigger things like like religions. Yeah. Right. I, I don't know anyone. This is again. This, uh, this is there's too much anecdotal stuff here because I've lived my life uh, for the most part uh, as friends or gamers and as a gamer. But I don't know anyone who has a uh, who who considers the, this gaming a sacred activity. And, and perhaps that's one of the big differences. Uh, even though um, as a modality of thinking in game terms, you're, you're acting out under these circumstances. You expect things to behave a certain way. You know, you, how would this character think? What are the impact? All these rules, um, without that sacred context, it, it it sort of breaks down as a religion, right? I believe, but uh, I guess the question is what constitutes a religion, right? (laughs) Right. And there's, there's, you know, the secret of religious studies as a discipline is there is no uniform definition of what religion actually is. Uh, and, and, and some religion scholars would even say there's no such thing as, as religion, right? It's, it's better to talk about something as religious or certain things that are deemed religious and so forth. Uh, so I'm not, con- I'm not ever claiming in the book that uh, role-playing games are a religion. I'm just saying – No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, let's compare them and some interesting insights come out of the creative tension of that comparison. I'm thinking in terms of uh, well, I, actually, this feels more like a, a it could easily turn into a, a coffee table discussion instead of an interview if I'm not careful. We've been talking about how a lot of criticism seems to come from religious groups, uh, but you stated in the book that some attacks have been led by secular voices as well. So, what are some of the secular concerns that uh, have been revealed about these games? Well, you know, this goes all the way back to the the cult panic of the 70s. So there were always kind of two prongs of attack against the cults. So uh, one one prong was the religious one, which said these people are basically heretics, right? They're not Christian. They're going to hell and they're leading other people to hell. And the other prong was sort of the, the psychological or the medical prong, which said these people are engaged in brainwashing. Uh, these people claim they want to be in this cult, but they don't really because the, the, the leader has uh, warped their mind by chanting or not giving them enough protein to eat or, or whatever it is. Uh, and so this weird uh, alliance would form. So some of the secular claims made about the game uh, were, you know, had to do with brainwashing, that this was, this was uh, uh, controlling people's minds. It was desensitizing them to violence. It was making them... Uh, more likely to hurt themselves or, or to hurt others. Uh, and people like Patricia Pulling were actually got good at sort of changing, tailoring the message to their audience. So in what audience, if it was a secular audience, she would uh, uh, take on the persona of a psychologist and talk about the medical dangers of the game. And if it was a religious audience, she would just say, you know, demons come out of the game and, and possess you and, and put curses on you. Um, so there's kind of two faces of the attack and there's this strange sort of alliance, uh, that, that, that happens, uh, out of the satanic panic. Mm-hmm. Very cunning. A lot of the book you talk about, um, sort of cultural frames of approaching these sort of topics. Um, how, in, in, in researching this from your field, how does that framing, uh, affect, uh, the way you approach the research. I mean, it, it, right. So, so frame theory in, in sociology, this is the idea that uh, we, we communicate with each other using symbols. And in fact, we sociologists would say we, we sort of order our, our whole world uh, kind of symbolically in terms of uh, what things are, what things mean. Sociologists talk about what's called the symbolic order, right? Um, why is the why do I think of the thing I'm sitting on right now as a couch as opposed to sort of just a mass of wood and, and leather, right? It's because I have this uh, uh, symbolic conception of a couch. Uh, so symbols mean something in different contexts, right, different sort of frames. Um, and this is true even in the, the animal kingdom, right? So um, Gregory Bateson, who was a kind of a founder of frame analysis, said uh, – if you watch monkeys, right, when they make certain facial expressions, this is aggression, right? And this symbolizes to other monkeys, right, I'm angry at you, you need to back away. But monkeys will also make those same facial expressions in the context of play. 
So when they're just at play, it actually doesn't mean you have to run away. It means let's let's wrestle or let's let's play. And so humans are the same way, right? So uh, something that in one context could be viewed as a threat or even an assault in a different context could be uh, a prank or just kidding or or something like this. Uh, and, and Bateson said there are even some forms of play that revolve around the question of, is this really play or, or isn't it, right? So things like uh, uh, fraternity hazing, right, that revolves around confusing the pledges about are you – are you really doing something nasty to them or are they just sort of kidding? Is this just a joke? Uh, and so most of the time we can move seamlessly uh, between different frames. So in role-playing games, uh, Gary Allen Fine, who's a sociologist who first applied frame theory to role-playing games, says there's three frames. There's the one frame of we're all sitting around a table holding these funny dice and we're playing a game. There's frame two, which is the mechanics of the game, right? So how many the, – the, the stats, the ability scores, the numbers – and then frame three is the actual story itself. And, and this sounds very confusing, but most of the time, if you watch players, they can seamlessly move between these three frames without any difficulties. And occasionally confusions arise where it's not really clear what's happening in the game or, or communication breaks down or, or something like this. But there are occasionally areas where uh, you can switch frames and not be aware of it. So Bateson said that a schizophrenic is someone uh, – who is not no longer able to, co- to communicate with everybody else because they're confused about what what frame they are they are in, uh, and so this this kind of sets up my analysis for uh, 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 for the for the whole book is this is a, the, the the attacks on D and D are really a fight about um, can people kind of create their own discrete frames of meaning can they create their own sort of um, uh, worlds of imagination, what in psychological literature is called paracosms, right? Because the claim of these, these uh, moral entrepreneurs is, no, that's not a paracosm. That's not going on in your imagination. Those are, that's real magic. Those are real demons and, and so forth. So in making that, that move, they're sort of trying to drag the magic and the monsters out of this frame of imagination and say it's all real. Uh, so this is a major theme of the book is how do we get good at negotiating these different frames of meaning without getting, uh, uh, confused. So speaking and maybe I'm going to get confused trying to ask this question. So I apologize <laughs> if I do, um, in the context of, uh, the satanic panic, you, you talk about, uh, people being afraid of cults, but the cults that they're afraid of, as you've already mentioned, are not the real cults. So, so there are real cults like the Moonies and the Heaven's Gate cults, and I think they have um, a real potential threat for some of the people who get involved in them, I think. But at the same time, there's this big, um, broad, urban legend, folkloric-type cult, uh, This this, which really is almost like an existential threat – in that when you dig into it, you can't find it. But how do you differentiate uh, in within your field? So this is that's why I'm saying it's kind of a meta question. Like within your field work, if you're studying the concept of a cult that, that doesn't have any factual reality uh, compared to an actual cult, which you could actually see real members and see their rules and behaviors, whatever – uh, how is that studied uh, or how, how are they different in the way that they're approached? Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm glad you asked this. Um, so in, in religious studies, we generally don't ever call anybody a cult, right? Um, <laughs> because this is such a loaded term. When you call a group, when you say that's not a religion, that's a cult. Uh, if you're talking about an actual group, right? So I say Mormons aren't a religion, they're a cult, which was a claim that was made back when, uh, uh, Mitt Romney was in the Republican primaries. Um, what that really is doing is it's it's putting a bunch of baggage in there implicitly, kind of subliminally, saying this is an evil group. These people aren't here by choice. They've been brainwashed. They're following a charismatic leader uh, and all this sort of thing. So if I'm talking about an actual group, uh, we, we may call them new religious movements uh, or, or something like this. But generally in religious studies, we don't make a distinction between cults and religions, Right. Um, uh, groups like the Hare Krishnas, the Moonies, the Mormons, right? These are all real religions, and a lot of damage can can happen uh, if we try to dehumanize those people by by calling them cults. Um, on the other hand, uh, if, if we're talking about a national panic over cults, right, we kind of have to use that term because they don't mean any groups in particular; they just mean this concept of of, of cults. 
Uh, and then when you get to the, the satanic panic, right, these are really uh, uh, conspiracy theories. And there's always been conspiracy theories um, uh, about groups that either don't exist at all or exist but are actually very powerless, right? So this would be the Illuminatis, this would be the Jews. In ancient times, this would have been Christians. And uh, there's a great book by David Frankfurter called Evil Incarnate, which shows that basically the, the claims in these conspiracy theories are basically the same claims going to the, the times of the Roman Empire uh, all the way up to the present with claims about uh, a satanic ritual abuse. It's always there's these people, uh, they're functionally invisible, you can't ever see them, but they're all around us, and their values are diametrically opposed to ours, and we help children, but they murder children, and uh, you know we don't... Uh, have sex with our mothers, but they practice incest, right? Basically everything in these, that these evil people do is, is sort of upside down. Uh, so there's a long literature about that and, uh, and why at certain periods in history people are maybe more likely uh, to believe conspiracy theories. You know, I guess it's a case of the gods of one religion are the demons of another. Well, if we're talking about actual religious movements, then, then yes, it is. Um, but again, if we're talking about Satanism, right, no one actually does these things. There, there, there isn't this actual group that goes and uh, uh, ritually tortures children for, for no reason, right? This, these things just don't uh, uh, go on. Uh, but for some people, I think the belief that this does happen uh, kind of helps to uh, support their view of how the world works, right? That, that in, in a weird way, it's, it's oddly comforting to think that uh, – um, all the terrible things that happen in the world are not the function. They're not uh, just circumstance. They're not because of complex situations we don't have control over. It's all being done by those Satanists, right? So we actually do have a lot of control over these problems if we can just root out the Satanists, right? <laughs> Instead of having a lot of problems, you just have one. And it's actually uh, something that, that a conspiracy theorist would say I know a lot about. Yeah, yeah. So it's oddly comforting. What actually ended the Satanic Panic? Or is it over? It's not over. Uh, I think what, what ended it was uh, law enforcement and uh, the media got a lot more savvy about these kinds of claims. But the general public uh, still believes in this. There was a study very recently that said uh, if, uh, if you're on trial and the prosecutor says anything at all about Satanism, right, this has an amazing power to sway – uh, juries, right? If they just hear the hear speculation that you might be a, a Satanist. I'm actually, I can't say much about this, but I'm actually an expert witness in a death penalty case right now uh, dating back to the Satanic Panic. Uh, so this is still very much uh, uh, something that's out there and that threatens to come back uh, all the time. And what someone like David Frankfurter would say is that we're, we're probably hardwired to think this way. Um, that, that we have, there, there are psychological reasons that make us inclined to believe that there are evil conspiracies out there trying to hurt us for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I've mentioned it before on the show, but th- there is a sort of a bias in law enforcement. If, if you had um, occult research books in your house and a c- crime was committed, uh, it would become a factor. Like the police would say, oh, they had occult books. But nobody, and they would call it. They might call it a satanic crime or an occult crime. But but nobody says, "Oh, we found a Bible. It was a Christian crime." That never happens. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the weird paradox of this is the investigators themselves always have all these books on the occult and are always fans of horror movies and are always preoccupied with fantasy. But it's they were the ones who accused first, so they're sort of above suspicion. It's a different right. kind of frame. <laughs> right, but but exactly, it's a different frame. But anyone who has those same interests, who who is not an accuser, uh, becomes the accused and is vulnerable to those kinds of accusations. We're really out of time now, Joe, and I, I hate it because I, I, we could just keep talking about this. this. is a topic I love, and the book is fascinating, mm-hmm. and uh, I think our, our listeners are really going to enjoy it. So we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, but before we go, I know we've already asked you before what your favorite monster is, but let me ask you a different question. What's your favorite Dungeons and Dragons monster? Wow, you know, I think my favorite Dungeons and Dragons monster is the Tarask. Um, the the Tarask in the Monster Manual is one of the most powerful monsters in the in the world, if not the universe. But I believe you should do a podcast on this. I believe it actually comes from a, a French legend where a, a saint or something uh, puts the Tarask to sleep, and then the villagers beat it to death with clubs. So when they put in the monster manual, they, they made a lot of uh, tweaks and, and power buffs on it. <laughs> That's funny. 
I, I think uh, I'm still fond of the land shark. <laughs> <laughs> the boule, the land shark. Yeah. yeah. I know that too. <laughs> Sounds like another show. Yeah, I think so. We we could probably do an entire episode just on the monster manual. There's so many fun things in there, and and from so many different uh, backgrounds. I, I I can't imagine. So Gary Gygax gets I guess credit for writing the monster manual, but uh, it has so many different influences. It's it's just such a what potpourri of monster uh, amazing things in there. So who puts that together then? What's that? Who puts that together then? Well, the, monster it, it come, it, the monster manual comes with Dungeons and Dragons. It's one of the core books. Okay. Uh, so you had the monster manual and the player's handbook, and then the dungeon master's guide. Yeah. <laughs> and if you have those three books and some uh, paper and dice and some friends and some pizza and some orange fago, you can really have fun. So. <laughs> <laughs> Seems very satanic. Oh, it is ridiculous. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe, for spending some time with us. And uh, I, I really appreciate you coming back and talking with us again. Yeah, thank okay. you, Joe. I, I believe the congratulations are in order as well. You just got engaged recently. I sure did, yeah. And my partner, uh, Natasha, who was here on the uh, the, the uh, Slenderman uh, podcast, uh, said yes. So, uh, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, yeah. hopefully it's really her and not just a tulpa. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> her, her diamond ring is just a tulpa, but don't uh. <laughs> Well, that is great news. Congratulations, indeed. (laughs) Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. You just heard Professor Joseph Laycock discussing the satanic panic and its impact on role-playing games. Joe's new book is Dangerous Games. And there's a link to his book in our show notes at monstertalk.org. If you decide to buy a copy of any of the books on Monster Talk, if you use the link in our show notes, a tiny portion of the proceeds will go to support the website. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the host, the guests, and a shadowy cabal of puppet masters who control us with polyhedral dice, pizza, and the best of intentions. These opinions do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Thanks again to the kind people who donate to Monster Talk via the website. Your patronage is much appreciated. Special thanks to David Cube and the amazingly supportive D.R. Crane. I've done a couple of contributions to the Skeptoid podcast, which uses a very different format and has far fewer puns, but which you might enjoy checking out. And I've been working on some ghost photography research, which may be part of a future episode, but which can be read about at Skeptic.com's Insight blog. I hope you'll give my articles a read and share them if you like them. I'm especially excited about the research I'm doing right now on the famous backseat ghost, which allegedly shows the image of a ghostly mother-in-law in the backseat of a car in 1959. More on that in the near future. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. I'm going to do a lot of editing on this episode. Sorry, Joe. You were speaking in tongues there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 